Jesus said these words in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. You see, there's one more greatest proof of the resurrection, and that is there's an empty tomb. Listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Good morning. Good morning. There is a hymn, Low in the Grave He Lay. And here's the words Death cannot keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose, amen? Jesus is alive. Today's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the morning of the third day after Jesus was brutally crucified on a Roman cross to provide redemption to all who would repent of their sin and trust him as their Lord and Savior. That morning, the women came to the tomb expecting to find a buried rabbi, and instead the angels declared, he is not here, he is risen. S. Lewis Johnson said, the resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement on the cross, it is finished. And I agree. This morning we're gathered in the name of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. You've already heard what the gospel has done in some people's lives in their testimony. But we're also here to be reminded of our living hope in the resurrection of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 declares, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit." Though Jesus is risen, yes, he is also alive, but the same cannot be said about humanity. Life, eternal life, the status of being spiritually alive is not the status of all mankind. And so this morning for a few moments, maybe the next two or three hours, we're going to be walking through. (laughs) No, we we do have some time to spend together, but we're going to Go back to, we're in the book of Genesis on Sundays. We're going back to the book of Romans today. Aren't you excited? So turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5 this morning, we're going to see how the Bible divides all of humanity and why the death and resurrection of Jesus is the dividing line for each and every human being. It doesn't matter what your background is this morning. Maybe you're a church attender. Maybe you're a member. Uh, Maybe you have been invited by your family or friends, your coworkers to be here this morning. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, your nationality, your people group, your upbringing, uh, if you're a Southpaw or not. What matters this morning is that all of us are put into one of these two categories. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 5. We're going to begin in chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning to exposit this text, to understand the meaning, and for your spirit to bring application. There are some this morning that may have never received salvation. They are dead in their sins. And Lord, there there is no other hope that we can offer this morning. We can't offer the hope of just church attendance or cleaning up their act and trying to be good and smart people. Lord, we can't this morning offer uh, some self-righteous religious answer to the plight of mankind. We only have one answer. We only have one solution. Your dear son bled and died in our place and rose again for our redemption. So this morning, Lord, we ask that the gospel would be clear and that you, by your spirit, would be working in each heart. Lord, remove distractions, but we pray, Lord, as we worship you here freely outdoors with this glorious day, that you would be exalted and glorified in this time of study. Lord, help us to lean forward and be attentive, and Lord, bring glory to your son through this time, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. The world today is seeking to lump people into certain categories. And these categories can be helpful, but they can also be divisive. They can cause us to pick, am I in this group, am I in that group? Am I in either or? And there's a lot of ways that people do this. It could be over race, it could be over class, it could be in their education, it could be their cultural differences. You say, well, you're not a part of my group, I'm in this group. And one of the markers that we use is either or, and this helps define, well, which group are you in? And this can be very divisive. We have, of course, the, the either or. Are you liberal or are you conservative? Did you get the vaccine or did you not get the vaccine? Uh, some would say, I'm vegan. And others like me praise God every day for his blessed gift of bacon. <laughs> so thankful. Many people are born right-handed, whereas some, like Pastor Micah and me, are created in the image of God, which is <laughs> clearly what Genesis 1 was referring to. If we were to break up the entire human race into two categories, what would they be? Would it be, would it be Democrat and Republican? Uh, no, we need not consult politics. We need consult the scriptures. This morning in Romans 5, we have two representatives. We have the first Adam, and we have the last true and greater Adam, Jesus Christ. Each of these men have procured something for those they represent as federal heads of their people. And we're going to see four big disparities here in four important verses focusing our attention on verses 18 and 22. So we're going to see in verse 18 that all humanity is either receiving condemnation or justification. You're either, in verse 19, receiving someone's disobedience or obedience. Your, your life is either marked, verse 20, by sin or it's marked by grace. And finally, the final dividing line is you are either, in your representative, a recipient of death or a recipient of life in verse 21. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to start in verse 18. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So to understand this, we need to see where we at in light of the context of the surrounding passage. It's neither wise nor safe to just yank a single verse out of context in Scripture because often when that happens, you misinterpret it. So in the book of Romans, which we've been studying, or we have studied for well over a year, Paul is laying out the gospel to the Romans, the Italians, 
And he is in chapter five explaining that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And this leads to peace with God in verse one. It leads to access through faith into grace, verse two. And we also have a reason to hope in the glory of God. And that means when we have sufferings, we can rejoice in those sufferings because we have been reconciled to Christ. But that reconciliation, church, it's neither automatic nor is it default. You and I as mankind are not born into some sort of default position. You maybe have seen the cartoons growing up. There's the little devil on one shoulder and the little angel on the other shoulder. And, and, and mankind is not in this status of, well, I'm just neutral. I'm just in the middle. And the devil is whispering in my ear, go and sin. And then the angel is whispering, go and serve God. And so I have a choice to make. And by default, I'm just, I'm just average. I'm just right in the middle. No, the Bible is very clear. You and I are enemies of God. We are children of wrath, Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We learn in Romans 8, 7 that the mind of flesh is enmity with God. And it's not neutral at all. So some have used the analogy of, hey, when I was saved, I was swimming in the ocean and God threw me a life raft, maybe through Joey. Joey threw me a life raft. And, and so I reached out and grabbed that life raft. And because I did that, I was able to be saved. No, the better analogy is that we were dead on the bottom of the ocean. We were completely incapable of saving ourselves. Someone had to swim down to the bottom of the deepest trench, and it wasn't Joey. It was Jesus Christ who had to come to rescue us, breathe life into us, and make us into a new creation. Jesus said in John 3, ye must be born again. So in Romans 5, we actually look up to verse 12 for just a moment, and what he does is he begins to, Paul begins to compare Adam, the first man, with Jesus. We learn in the book of Genesis that Adam was tempted in the garden, that Adam fell into sin. We learn in the Gospels that Jesus was also tempted. He was tempted not in a garden, but in a wilderness, but he resisted that temptation. We learn that Adam there gave in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Jesus, we learn in Hebrews, was tempted in every respect as we are, yet he was without sin. We learn that Adam was just given one command and he failed. And yet Jesus not only upheld the entire Mosaic law, but he even fulfilled it. So these aren't equals. Adam on one side pitted against Christ on the other and they're on the equal playing field. No, whenever there's something Adam gives us, we see Christ giving us much more. And so this chapter provides us a concept known as federal headship. Adam is the federal head of all mankind. In the same way that here in America, we vote for certain elected officials, and they're supposed to, as representatives, represent their constituency. Uh, We, of course, are not a democracy perfectly. We're more of a federal republic as a nation. We elect officials, and they choose their choices, hopefully standing in our place, so to speak, and voting as if we would vote, uh, and either voting for or against a piece of legislation. They may do a good job representing us, They may do a poor job, but irregardless, they have been elected to represent us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam and what has happened and will yet happen because of Jesus Christ. So Adam stands up for all of the human race, and he is the appropriate representative. He chose what all of us would choose. He chose to sin. He chose to rebel. He chose to uh, go his own way. And thus he bore the consequences that you and I are now all subject to. 
What is that? Well, that is guilt, that's corruption, that's sin, and that's death. That's very bad news, isn't it? Uh, that is terrible news for us to gather together and hear. However, there is good news. We have a second representative, and we'll get to him in a moment. But look at verse 18. It says, one trespass led to what? It led to condemnation. Adam's trespass in Eden condemned us. That means none of us are without excuse. Uh, you are, according to Psalm 51, conceived in sin. Romans 3, 10, and 11 tell us there's no one righteous, not even one. When we hear messages like this or we hear testimonies like we heard earlier, there's a little inner Pharisee that wants to, to a little attorney that wants to stand up and go, well, hold on, time out. I'm not that bad. Have you seen what's happening around the world? There's terrible plight happening. I'm not that bad. And we always uh, tend to pit ourselves against someone else. Uh, but when we read here in verse 18 that condemnation came from one man, that means a few things. First, it means that Paul clearly believed the book of Genesis and Adam and Eve to be literal historical people. So he would agree with what we've been teaching on Sunday mornings. He's not a made-up creation fable. Even Matthew 19, Jesus affirms the historical accuracy of Adam. But this also means that unlike what mom told me, I'm not inherently a good boy. Uh, I am evil. No matter what Pelagius believed, we are all sinners. We are all condemned. I have to tell you the bad news before I can get to the good news. You see, the scripture goes on in this verse to say that there is also one act of righteousness. And because of that one act of righteousness, we have justification and life. What was this act of righteousness? Well, this, of course, can be speaking of Jesus' obedience to the law, that Jesus was without sin. But this also can speak to what Philippians 2 refers to as Christ's whole obedience unto death. Jesus was obedient from the garden, well, always, but specifically in the garden when he says, not my will, but thy will be done. And he's obedient to death, Philippians 2 says, even death on a cross. Jesus' death is the one meritorious ground which reverses the condemnation that came through Adam. So this morning, you are either in Adam, eternally condemned, or you're in Christ, declared righteous, justified, and not given a death sentence, but given life. Well, that's the first thing we see. But secondly, we see that we either receive disobedience or obedience. Look at verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus stands in as our representative, and he fulfills the law where Adam failed. Jesus, we learn, is fully pleasing to the Father. Jesus never sinned. He was obedient and laid down his life as a propitiation, as a sacrifice to satisfy the demands of the law. And as we learned at our Good Friday service uh, just this weekend, he came to bear the awful wrath of God when he was crucified. So though there are two Adams, two representatives for all mankind, there's big contrasts. We have one act, which is a fall. It's a deviation from obedience. It's a stubborn, selfish act of defiance against God. But then the other act, the other act is a self-sacrificing work of redemptive love that overflows in rich and undeserved abundance to many others. You can't compare these as if they're parallel. The believer finds pardon, not only for the one sin he shares in Adam, but we also find pardon for all of our sin. We don't merely receive mercy, which is our sin being forgiven. We also receive abundant 
grace and favor and life and immortality and even right standing with a holy God. A.W. Pink says, In the day that Adam fell, the frown of God came upon all his children. The corruption which we inherit from our parents is a great evil, for it is the source of all our personal sins. You might be here this morning and say, that's not fair. I didn't, I didn't sin in the garden. I wouldn't have blown it like Adam did. Put me in, coach. I could take one for the team. I would do the, the right thing where Adam failed. But I remind you, Adam is, is the one who did what all of us would have done. And so he's responsible for sin entering the world, yes. But that doesn't mean we're less responsible. We'd love to be Pilate this morning and wash our hands and absolve ourselves of original sin, and yet all of us have sinned. We've all been guilty. And our sin caused Jesus to suffer and die at Calvary. The one hymn, Twas I That Did It, says, Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Son of God. I joined the mockery. It's easy for us this morning to to pit all of the evil out there, And so I would suggest to you, I would present to you, if you're here this morning as an atheist, an agnostic, as a a doubter, you would say, well, most of the evil takes place out there. And I would say, no, most of the evil in this world takes place right in here. Not without, but within. Adam's sin is our sin. His act of disobedience makes us all sinners. But what do we read here? One man's obedience brought many to be made righteous. One person said, look at yourself in Adam. Though you did nothing, you were declared a sinner. But now look at yourself in Christ and see that though you've done nothing, you're declared to be righteous. Though we're guilty because of Adam's disobedience, Jesus was fully obedient to the Father. Jesus bore the Father's wrath, and so redemption and grace can now be available to us. And so when the Father looks at us, he sees obedience. Why? Because, not because we're great Christians, but because Christ has done the work. We learn in verse 19, one man's disobedience made many sinners, but the one man's obedience makes many righteous. Well, we also see in verse 20 that our life is marked either by sin or by grace. What did Ryan say earlier? That he loved his sin, and that was where he didn't want to give up uh, and and truly surrender and acknowledge that that Christ is Lord. Well, in verse 20, it's a little bit... um, maybe disorienting. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. How did the law come in to increase the trespass? What does that mean? Well, the law of Moses was a parenthetical addition, and it reveals right from wrong. It demonstrates the utter need for a savior. But sin didn't enter the world when the law did. Sin had already existed from Genesis chapter 3. The law didn't add more sin. It simply increased it because now we know what God's expectation is. So in the same way, whenever you and I are told what is right from wrong, our sinful nature seeks to test that theory. If this morning we were to paint the outside of the building, or actually we don't even have to paint it, just hang a sign that says wet paint. And we encourage you after the service to go in and and, uh, take advantage of the family photo booth. And let's say the line wraps out here. There's definitely going to be one of us who's standing in line who sees the wet paint sign, and we just wonder, is it really wet? Let me just test that theory. I have to. I just have to feel it, and oh, yep, I, I was wrong or I was right. We, we tend to want to test that theory. In the Greek, this is very interesting, where it says sin increased, uh, and then it says grace increased all the more. We would imagine it would say where sin increased, God's judgment increased all the more. 
But see, in the Greek, this could be translated, verse 20, as uh, grace abounded. It could be translated as super abounded. So it's not like Adam's sin produced a cup of blackness in our life. And so to remedy it, God's grace just dumped the blackness out. And now we started again with a, a blank cup. No, it's more accurate that the grace of Christ through the work of Christ so abundantly pours into the cup that all of the blackness is washed away and cup after cup after cup is filled with the righteousness and favor of God. You see, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What we lost in Adam has been more than regained in Christ. Christopher Ashe says, one sin did massive damage, but one grace gift in Jesus can undo all that damage. In my own life, my life growing up, I was marked by sin. That was, uh, that's what defined my life. Some of you know my testimony. I was running from Christ. Uh, I had pursued a college education away, like anywhere farthest away from family, farthest away that would be a party school where I could pursue my own sinful agenda. And yet in his kindness, the Father was drawing me. I was, I was obstinate. I was defiant. My life was marked by these things. And yet when I saw the kindness of Christ, that he would avert God's judgment from me, I realized Woe is me. I'm undone. I, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of his salvation. Why would he ever offer his grace to me? And yet he did. And my life was changed. My life was marked now and continues to be marked not by sin anymore. Though I still sin, my life and our lives as Christians is now marked by grace. And not just grace to cover sin, but grace super abundant. Isn't that glorious? Well, then we come to verse 21. And not only is there an either or with condemnation, justification, or, or disobedience, obedience, or sin and grace, but there's also death or life. Verse 21 says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word for reign here is the Greek word basileo, which means to rule as a king. It literally means kingdom. So because of Adam's failure, death is now the king. It rules. And the empire of death has ruled since the garden. One person said, it's staggering to think how completely death has reigned under Adam. Everyone who is born dies. The mortality rate is 100%. He says, when a baby's born, it isn't a question of whether the baby will live or die. It most certainly will die. The only question is when. And we think of this world as the land of the living, but it's actually the land of the dying. And so death has reigned through Adam. It says death reigns over here, but who reigns in life over here? It says grace through righteousness. In fact, verse 17, if you look up for a moment, says death reigns through the woman, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So grace reigns, and you could say we reign. We will ultimately experience eternal life. All of us will experience death physically, but if we are in Christ, we'll overcome the grave and spiritual death by being given true eternal life. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. If you're in Adam this morning in your default state, it doesn't matter what year is written on your tombstone. It doesn't matter when the doctor records the date and time. It doesn't matter when your heart stops, when the brain activity ceases. Maybe your family says it's time for us to pull the plug. Now, the Bible explains you're already dead. 
in your trespasses and sins. But for those of us who repent of our sin, we turn from our sin, we acknowledge Christ, we yield our life to him, we trust him. The Bible says God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with Christ. And this seems like past tense. He's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 tell us. So because of Christ's perfect work, we, looking at Easter morning, we see Jesus triumphantly rising from the dead and we realize that is a pattern for us as believers. We too need not fear death, though we will die. We know that we'll be resurrected as well. And that's what we're celebrating this morning, isn't it? The truth of the gospel, that Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, he is alive. However, this morning, that is just not a default status for all people. You and I must receive this gift. Paul says in Romans 5, this is a gift. It's a gift of righteousness that has to be received. It's not received by all men. Not all men will be alive spiritually. Some of us are still, some of you, I shouldn't say us, are still buried in the bottom of the ocean, dead in sin, dead in Adam. And so what I want to do before we close this morning is put all of us into one of three camps. We're all either in Adam or in Christ, but there's a response to this message. And if you're here this morning, this is not when it's time to tune out. I want you to really pay attention. I love you. I want you to hear this. Everyone here this morning gathering here under the tent. We need a bigger tent next year, by the way. Praise God. But all of us here are in one of these three responses. We will either hear the gospel and deny it. You can try to deny that Jesus rose from the dead, but the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, one historian, Harvard Law professor, admitted that according to the laws of legal evidence, Used in courts of law, there's more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than just about any other human history event. There's many good reasons to believe and trust in the resurrection. Uh, we can look at the apostles' witness, and we can say, wait a minute, before the cross, the, the 12, the 11, they were afraid. They were running for their lives, literally. And yet, after this resurrection, we find them preaching boldly, even under the threat of the same crucifixion. Acts chapter 2 through 6 show us that the disciples had changed. Something happened. Where did they get this boldness from if Jesus had not risen from the dead? Not only that, but the original eyewitnesses were women. Now, that's a big deal because a woman's testimony was not considered valid in the first century. If you really wanted to prove this and it was a hoax, you would not give the women uh, testimony as eyewitnesses. Why would the Gospels give us that? The only reason they would is because that's what happened. And so why would women be the first witnesses if the Jews wouldn't accept a woman's testimony? Because Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to women. Well, not only that, but we have in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, we are told that a large crowd of witnesses, uh, around 500 people, not all believers, uh, were testifying of seeing Jesus. In fact, 11 different times Jesus appears to men and women, to groups, to couples, to individuals, in this place, in that place, inside, outside, different times of day, different locations. Not just seen physically touched and audibly heard. How could this many corroborating witnesses verify that Jesus was alive? Were they all uh, seeing some sort of, you know, hoax? 
Well, not only that, but the apostles went to their deaths for their faith. Some people believe, the Muslims believe in the swoon theory that Jesus just passed out on the cross, that he was wrapped in about 100 pounds of, of spices and, and, <laughs> and linen, and that he, he sort of stumbled out of, the, out of the grave. He somehow unwrapped himself, and he pushed the stone out of the way, and then he kind of came back to his disciples and invoked inspiration uh, through his, his suffering. Uh, and we would look at that and say, well, hold on just a minute. Um, all of the apostles went to their deaths. If, if they saw him barely recover from a crucifixion, how in any way would that inspire them to also die in, in, in the like manner that Jesus suffered? Uh, they did not die for a lie. They didn't die for uh, a recovering Savior. They died for a risen Lord. Amen. Not only that, but in the first century, there was a massive outbreaking of Christianity. The thousands who were familiar with Jesus' teachings, with his life, they were eyewitnesses. They were in close proximity to the events of Passion Week or Holy Week. They had been with him those three years. They all came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That included the Jews from various social strata, even some of the religious party that helped get him crucified. Even some of the Romans who nailed him to the cross believed. Now, how can this be unless the many who saw and knew Jesus firsthand believed him to be who he said he was? How could that be if he had not risen from the dead? You see, this morning, you can see the evidence right before you. You can try to ignore it. You can try to deny it to your own folly, shame, and condemnation. That was me for many years. And I just implore you to look into the claims of Christ and the teachings and work of Christ. So you can deny it this morning. Or secondly... You can disregard it. I don't know how anyone can knowingly ignore the claims of Christ. For if there be an empty tomb, we have the only man who has ever lived on this earth who died and forever conquered death. You might say, well, what about Lazarus? Lazarus died. Yeah, poor Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead, but he died again. And so Jesus said these words in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. You see, there's one more greatest proof of the resurrection, and that is there's an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb. We know the Romans wouldn't have stolen his body. Why would they have done that? They're trying to quell the uprising. The Jews certainly wouldn't have stolen his body. Uh, they absolutely wanted to produce his body and show that we have succeeded. Uh, this was not a hoax. The disciples would not have died for a lie. When we get in trouble for lying, we'll quickly fess up. Someone said, and they, this is an actual scholar, suggested that the disciples just went to the wrong tomb. <laughs> These are people with PhDs. They just went to the wrong tomb. They were mistaken. Joseph of Arimathea forgot where, he, where his tomb was, and they, just, they, they showed up at the wrong tomb. We all know that's ridiculous because the Jews would simply say, wrong tomb, here's his body, and it would be uh, shown that he did not rise from the dead. And so that means the only possible outcome was on the third day, Sunday morning, Jesus arose defeating death and sin and securing our redemption. You can deny the gospel, ignore the evidence, you can stay dead in your sin. You can't truly disregard the empty tomb. It demands an answer. And so in light of the eternal life that Jesus Christ offers to all who would repent and believe, the third response this morning is only fitting. And that's not that we would deny or disregard, but that we would desire the gospel. To know what it truly means to be alive. I'm not talking about uh, church. I'm not talking about self-righteous religion. I'm not talking about cleaning up your act. I'm talking about being alive. 
Do you know what it means to be alive? This doesn't mean your heart's beating, your brain is functioning. No, it means that death has been defeated. It means that your sins have been forgiven. It means you have the hope of eternity. It means you have boundless peace with God. It means you have joy everlasting. You have abiding power to live meaningful and purposeful lives. You have a corrupt and deceitful heart of stone that's now transformed into a new heart of flesh. You have an ever-present help in various times of trouble. You have immutable adoption into a beloved family. You have a relentless grace that far outweighs your sin. And you have a divine favor and a loving kindness that will take all of eternity for God, our triune God, to express to his people. You see, to truly understand what it means to be alive is to know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Do you have that eternal life this morning? Are you alive? Are you truly saved? If you've never turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ, we beseech you this morning, don't let another day, another moment pass by. Look to Christ. Confess your sin. Receive his finished work on your behalf. Be brought from death to life. Maybe you were invited this morning, but don't leave this gathering today without receiving what Jesus would offer you. What a joy it would be to make today, Resurrection Sunday, the day that marks your new life in Christ. Our pastors are going to be available after the gathering this morning to pray with you, to talk with you. You can also talk to the person who invited you. Find a person on the row and say, I, I want to be alive. I want to know Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Let Christ rescue you from sin, death, and hell. One day, all of us will stand before God. And the answer that we provide will only be either in Christ or in Adam. We close this morning with the story about how the news of the victory at the Battle of Waterloo and the defeat of Napoleon arrived in England. There were no telegrams or telephones in those days. Nobody could send a text or tweet, or post to Facebook. You couldn't put it up on TikTok or Instagram. But everyone knew that Wellington was facing Napoleon in that great battle. The day was the 18th of June, 1815. And the future of England was on the line. Well, people in the city of London and around the countryside of England were waiting with anticipation to hear about the news of the battle's outcome. When suddenly a sailing ship arrived in the harbor, and it signaled with coded flags the impending news to the signalman on top of Winchester Cathedral. His job was then to uh, proceed to signal to another man somewhere on a distant hill, and in this way, the battle news would be passed on from one place to another until all of Great Britain heard, whether victory or defeat. Well, the ship came into the harbor, the history records, and the signalman received the first word, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N, Wellington. And then the next word was signal, D-E-F-E-A-T-E-D, defeated. Well, in that exact moment, maybe you saw it this morning if you woke up early, there was a great fog that was actually descending here uh, in our uh, part of Lakewood Ranch. And a great English fog happened to roll into the harbor right at that moment. And so the ship could not be seen for hours. And so Wellington defeated was the news that quickly it came across England, and great gloom immediately filled the countryside. Napoleon has won. All is lost. However, after about two or three hours, the fog lifted, and the signal came again. Wellington defeated. T-H-E, the E-N-E-M-Y. Wellington defeated the enemy, and within moments, all of England rejoiced. 
You see, there was also a day when they put the expired body of our Lord Jesus in the tomb. The message appeared to be, Christ is dead, Christ is defeated. But we know three days later, so to speak, the fog lifted. Scripture declares, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen indeed. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to close in song, singing these words. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Father, we thank you for paying the price of redemption through your son's brutal death, his burial. And Lord, that you rose again triumphantly. This morning, that is our living hope. And so we join with saints around the globe today and through all generations to declare Christ is risen indeed. Thank you that you've made us alive with him. We now celebrate that truth as we sing. In Jesus' name, Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.